For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Welcome back. Lovely to be with you. Are you getting ready for the holidays? If you're looking for a gift for the sustainable fashion fan in your life or for yourself, may I humbly suggest that you buy a copy of Where Next? Fashioning the Future. It's out now in Australia from all good bookstores or your Kindle. And if you're in Europe, you can pre-order the UK edition. It will turn up early Feb, which will be here before you know it, right? I'm really proud of this book and I hope you enjoy it. I'll share links in the show notes. Okay. Before we get too festive, I've got another climate episode for you because COP28 is still going. Lots of news coming out of there daily. I've been sharing some of it on my Instagram. If you're into this stuff, then this interview with Gregory Andrews is a must listen and kind of a hectic one, I've got to say. Gregory is a former diplomat and was Australia's first ever threatened species commissioner, actually. Amazing. He worked as a public servant here in Australia for about 30 years, including 15 in the departments of foreign affairs and trade, environment, climate change, and also indigenous affairs. He is these days as well an adjunct associate professor at the University of Canberra's Institute for Applied Ecology. So a man who's got a lot of experience looking at policy, at the climate and at how things work. Now, we met by chance a few weeks ago in my local neighbourhood of Redfern in Sydney. It was during the Voice campaign. For international listeners who don't know about that, it was around, well, it was a referendum to establish a First Nations voice to Parliament in Australia, in the Constitution. And devastatingly, yes, did not win. Anyway, for more on the background to that, and actually just for more about First Nations Australian activism and creativity and the ongoing work, I would recommend that you listen to our episode with photographer Juno Jeems. That is number 197. We'll stick a link in the notes. But this one is a conversation about climate and the very bold action that Gregory took recently when he went on a hunger strike. I know. You'll hear him talk about feeling almost invincible and protected while he was at the pointy end of this hunger strike and likening it to religious imagery that shows figures surrounded by light, even though he's not religious. And when I said to him, "Mm, that sounds like a hallucination to me, he said it didn't feel that way. More like a state of higher consciousness that you can achieve through meditation, he said. But he also made it very clear that it was not fun not an enjoyable experience. In fact, it's dangerous. And he is not encouraging other people to do this. Importantly, he had a plan of action to stop the strike when his body couldn't take it. And this was agreed with his wife and monitored by a nurse. And, you know, he's well aware that this is radical stuff. That's why I started by telling you about his background as a diplomat and a public servant. He also is aware of the potential, and I wanted to raise this, for linking this idea of refusing to eat with sickness, with eating disorders, with self-harm. However, he is emphatic about the difference between those things and what he did. But I guess it's just a warning here. If these topics are triggering to you, then you might want to consider that before listening. I would be really interested to hear what you make of this. One thing is for sure, Gregory Andrews is perfectly sane and he's driven by a genuine desire to get the government to take climate action seriously, governments all around the world, and to stop subsidising the fossil fuel industry. And while he says he wouldn't do a hunger strike again, he has no regrets. Let me know what you think. So was it effective? Do you admire it? Or do you think it's too much? Can you relate to his motivation? I know I can. And if you want to sign Gregory's petition, there's a link in the show notes along with further reading. As usual, this is a conversation I want to hear from you. So do get in touch with us on social media and let me know what you think. Also, if you like this episode and all the others, please keep sharing with your friends. Thank you. Now, let's get to the bottom of what Gregory Andrews set out to do with his climate activism and why. 
Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis Podcast, Gregory Andrews. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Claire. Uh, I really appreciate it. You were actually outside and there were, I don't know, rainbow lorikeets. What would they be? There were birds, there was rain. Oh, yeah, they're actually... It, it's raining in Canberra at the moment and um, I have lots of bird friends that I feed and look after and interact with, including a pair of king parrots, a male and a female, who sit on my hand and oh, eat out of my hand. Really? And, yeah, and lots of um, we have a we have a garden where we have planted a lot of things to attract birds and support habitat for nature in urban settings. Love that. Gregory, we've actually met before. We met in my local park, which is in Redfern, in Sydney a couple of months ago. It's a, it's a very significant place for Aboriginal people for various reasons around rights and reconciliation and history. This was during the Vote Yes March around the Voice to Parliament and we had a chat about your activism. You were with your family, you'd made a bunch of yes campaign signs and you gave me one to put in my house. Do you remember that? I- I did. And um, we met as strangers and you, you really liked the signs that I'd made. And so actually I'm an Australian of shared Aboriginal uh, Scottish and uh, Middle Eastern ancestry. So I've got DNA from this continent uh, of 65,000 years running through my blood, but also Scottish ancestry from Perthshire and um, Persian ancestry. And, and so the voice for me, the voice referendum, which sadly didn't get up, was something that was really important because it was something about celebrating what Australia is today, which is a a multicultural Asia-Pacific democracy, but founded on 65,000 years of ongoing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. So, Mm. yeah, I remember quite clearly I'd made the, I'd painted love hearts with the Aboriginal flag and um, I had a few spare ones to hand out to people at the Yes Rally and, and you were one of the people I gave one to and, I, and you subsequently sent me a photo of it on your veranda. It's still there actually, Gregory. <laughs> <laughs> when you care about something, a cause, it's very clear that you want to do something about it. We're going to talk about what you've been doing recently. But do you want to start with that? What is it that makes you say rather than sit on the sidelines or even rather than go through conventional avenues, you're going to do something creative, something different, something that gets people talking. Mm, I think um, that apart from my family, the two things that are the most important to me are nature and human rights. And, you know, I'm 55, but during my lifetime, three quarters of the animals on earth have disappeared Uh, And so we're facing a biodiversity crisis. For me, as an Aboriginal person, seeing biodiversity depletion and seeing habitat destruction, not just directly from human activity, uh, but also from climate change and from invasive species here in Australia, like feral cats and rabbits and European foxes, it's deeply heartbreaking. And um, so I've always had a strong focus on... Uh, doing what's right. And, and I remember one of my favourite films is Strictly Ballroom. Is it? A beautiful, <laughs> I yeah. wasn't ready for that. <laughs> okay, they have great with costumes it. and wardrobes. But my favourite quote from that film is, a life lived in fear is a life half lived. And I always say that to my, my children. And so I've done a few things in my life that have cost me but I knew they were the right thing to do. And um, for example, when I was Australia's ambassador to Ghana and a, a total of nine countries in West Africa, including Senegal, I was expected to promote a massive oil and gas project in Senegal. And and I just couldn't do that. I couldn't look my teenagers in the eye. Wow. Yeah. So I quit that job and I came back to Australia. Uh, and so personally, that had an impact on me. But in my heart, I knew it was the right thing to do. God, there's so much in this, Gregory. Like I was going to say, and what did you do? Did you say, hang on, I'm going to have to suck it up while I keep this job and then find a way to try to change things through policy? No, you say I quit. I refuse to do it. It doesn't align with my values. Yeah, earlier on in my career, I think I often tried to find 
like niches where I could work for a government that may not be the most progressive government. Uh, Because on average in Australia, we have more conservative governments than we do progressive governments. Uh, But but I, I think the world has got to a state, not just with climate change, but with the biodiversity crisis, with the loss of the animals and plants that belong here and that sustain us because we're part of that. We've got to a state where it's too late now. We can't put things off any longer. Mm. You are Mm. also an adjunct professor at the University of Canberra's Institute for Applied Ecology. What is that anyway? It sounds like a fancy title, doesn't it? It does. It's it's basically uh, uh, an honorary and um, volunteer professor uh, and uh, the, the Institute for Applied Ecology in Canberra does really amazing work protecting and supporting nature. You know, here in Australia, we have this clean, green, uh, nature-abundant image, but we actually have the highest rate of mammal extinctions in the world. Um, we, you know, we put a kangaroo on the tail of Qantas and we name our sporting teams the, the wallabies and the socceroos, but we've actually lost eight wallaby species to extinction already and another 16 are at risk. Uh, so the work I do at the Institute for Applied Ecology, although I trained as an economist and uh, in international relations and spent most of my career in um, sort of public policy and diplomacy, uh, I think they've recognised that I've got a skill and a capability at bridging the gap between science and and community. And, and so it, it's based predominantly on my role, a previous job I had, which I think was the best job I had working in the Australian government as the Federal Commissioner for Threatened Species. All right, we're going to come back to that. I want to just bring you back to the day that you and I met a couple of months ago. Your kids were with you, right? Were they? Can, yeah, can you they tell were. us about your family? Yeah, so I, I have um, two teenagers. My son, Noah, is, just, is about to turn 18 and just finished high school. And my daughter, Tilly, is uh, 16 and she just got finished her level seven piano exams. Uh, and actually, I have to say, every time I hear her practising the piano, it's really hard not to cry. I often think with all of the turmoil in the world, with environmental destruction and with what's happening, for example, in the Middle East and, uh, and the poverty and this extreme injustice, one thing that is still beautiful and that will always be beautiful, even as the climate collapses, is music. Oh, I was just thinking of, and you'll forgive me if I can't remember his name, but we'll share a link to it in the show notes, that extraordinary clip of the pianist on the grand piano. It was filmed as a Greenpeace activation and he's playing as the icebergs behind him crash down. Have you seen that? No, I haven't seen that. Oh, bring the tissues. Okay. Yeah. Talking Mm. of bring the tissues. (laughs) Just one thing. My dog is outside. I can hear that doggo. Bring that dog in. (laughs) I'm just going to ask him to come inside. Come on, in Good boy. He needs to be wherever I am. If I'm inside, he wants to be inside. Could we meet him, please? Who he? Fred. Yeah, come, come on. Come on. Come here. He, he actually, he accompanied me on um, the, the other thing that we're going to talk about I on know. the lawns of Parliament Hey, House. Fred. Oh, Fred. <laughs> you are a beauty. Isn't um, he adorable? All right. Good uh, segue. Here we go. <clears throat> Can you tell our listeners what you were doing this time a couple of weeks ago with Fred? Two weeks ago today, I was actually, I think I was 15 days into a hunger strike on the lawns of Australia's Parliament House for, for climate action. I, I was fairly delirious and um, I, um, I was in a haze, you could say, after having not eaten. I was, after that, I was actually hospitalised for a few days and on the the, the note that I got when I was discharged, it said self-imposed starvation. <laughs> but no, actually, yeah, so two weeks ago I was actually um, on the lawns of Parliament House 15 days into an indefinite hunger strike for climate action that ended two days after that when my wife and um, the paramedics actually told me that if I didn't stop I'd do permanent damage to my body. Before we get on to 
how it ended up. I want to just stick on how it began. Hmm. So you're outside the Australian Parliament in Canberra. I saw you had a tent. I saw you had your dog for company. Did you sleep there the whole time? I wasn't allowed to sleep there according to the permit rules. You, You can't stay overnight, which was actually, I think, a blessing because it meant that I could come home and get into bed. Uh, but I was there every day from dawn till dusk and uh, I had all different adaptive type of aff- apparatus, you could say. I had a tent at one stage. It was one of those beach tents. Yep. <laughs> uh, but I, I also keep the sun had off. a... That's right. That was to keep the sun off. Uh, but I ended up in a swag at the end of it because I didn't really have the strength to to stand up or sit up. If you're listening to this in Europe or in the US or in Africa or somewhere that isn't here, what's a swag? A swag is like a roll-out um, mattress that has a canvas top. So I think we probably invented them in Australia, but they're perfect in the desert or in dry climates for, for camping mm. and for classic, sleeping out. classic kind of vision of the Australian bushman, isn't it, out there in the swag? Yeah, it is indeed. Yeah, so I was in my swag out the front of Parliament House for the last week. I had a chair at the beginning, a folding chair, but it got too difficult. This is a fashion podcast, so before we get off this, what did you wear? I saw you in a Stop Coal t-shirt. What does one wear to do such a thing? (laughs) Actually, that's a really good question. And I I actually made an active choice. The Stop Coal t-shirt, I only put that on when I was in hospital. Uh, but but I, I, I made a very active decision about what I would wear and it was because I didn't want the government or the media or politicians to discount what I was having to say if they thought that I was a greenie or a hippie. Uh, so, so I purposely made myself look conservative and I actually wore my old ambassador shirts. I dug out all of my old um, business shirts from when I was an ambassador and um, wore those. And I, it was the first time I'd wore them for, for two years. Some of them had still been pressed from by, by the butler that I had in, in Ghana who, who beautifully ironed yeah. my clothes for me because I hadn't worn them since I'd quit, quit that job. Gregory, this makes me think of a conversation that I had with another Australian legend. I'm putting you in that bracket, Bob Brown. We'll share a link to it. And I, he's a forest protector. And I asked him a fashion question. We've always got to have one. And he talked about when he first did the protests or led the protests in the 70s around the Franklin Dam in Tasmania. And he wore a suit and a tie. And he encouraged others to borrow these ties they had in the HQ because Mm. they were saying the same thing. They didn't want to be discounted as a rabble, hippie lot of not serious players. Your clothes say something, right? It's interesting. They they do. They absolutely do. And, you know, like when I'm at home, I'd much rather be in my pyjamas or my gardening clothes. And uh, my kids often joke that I'm a human billboard because I tend to wear a lot of shirts with messages. I think I've got one on today that says <laughs> Australian Republic. <laughs> Good on you. But, but, but yeah, but for, for the climate strike, I thought it was really important because climate change is not just a green fringe issue. It's a national security issue. And it's a human security issue. And, you know, the Australian government spends more subsidising fossil fuels than they do on our army. So we, we tend to, like, have this image that we're a clean, green country, but we're actually a petrostate. And we're the world's biggest exporter of coal and we're the world's third largest exporter of fossil fuels. And, and our government actually... My, allows the big fossil fuel companies, one, to pay no tax, but it actually gives them 11 billion Australian dollars a year, which is probably about like, it'd be like 6 billion pounds or, you know, like it'd be about 7 or 8 billion US dollars in subsidies, which is more than they spend on our army, which is kind of ironic given that our army is to protect our national security, but they're actually spending more eroding our national security. Oof. Yeah. Okay, I want to come back to this extraordinary action that you took, climate hunger strike. You mentioned that after 16 days, you 
you had to step back. On November the 18th, you wrote a blog post titled, My Body Gave Up, But My Determination Hasn't. And you wrote, yesterday, I had to listen to my body when it started to give out. I was losing control of my limbs and speech and my brain got pretty foggy. My wife, the Parliament House nurse, the ambulance paramedics and the federal police were all telling me it's time to get to hospital. Yeah, I, I, um... The power of a hunger strike is actually in not giving up. And, and so time-based hunger strikes, striking for a weekend or a week, don't have as much power as the power of saying you'll do it for as long as it takes. And, and so I was determined to do it for as long as I could, for as long as my body would allow me to. Um, but I also knew that I had a wife and two teenage children um, and it wouldn't be fair to them to permanently harm myself or, or die. You, you had an agreement with your wife, though, didn't you? Tell us about I that. I did, yeah. I had an agreement with my wife, part of her agreement to, to allow me to do this because we're a team, uh, was that she was allowed to uh, pull the plug on it. And during my hunger strike, I couldn't say that because it would take my power away. Uh, but um, my wife actually asked me to finish it a day earlier. And, and actually she said, I said, why? And I was lying in bed because as soon as I got home, I'd just go straight to bed. And she said, Greg, I want you to finish the hunger strike tomorrow. And uh, I said, why? And she said, because you're getting really sick and you can't see it. I lost my motor stability. I couldn't walk properly and, and, and I was really spaced out. And so, mm -hmm. so I, yeah, my wife had that. That was a condition which is actually a really good condition because when you're hunger striking, you feel quite powerful and, and um, history shows hunger strikers can be quite stubborn. Mm. And, and so my wife, my wife was my lifeline. Yeah, she and the parliament house nurse. Personally, I wasn't afraid of dying while I was in my hunger strike. It was quite extraordinary. I, I've, I have a heart condition, so my doctor wouldn't support me because I have an, an, a heart, enlarged heart and a heart murmur. And I was conscious that I had chest pain a few times. But the only reason I was worried about dying was that it would end my hunger strike and that my family would be upset because I felt like I had this force field around me, a little bit like those images of Jesus or the Buddha or Hindu gods where you see all that light around them. Wow. And I felt like that was protecting me. But but so but that, I, that I sounds really, like a hallucination. It yeah, it 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 was actually quite different to hallucin hallucination. For anyone who meditates or maybe prays, it felt a lot like after doing a lot of deep meditation, I felt deeply leveled and calm. And, and I felt like I had really strong mental clarity, but I, but I also felt really, really focused. And, and I, I was powerful. Um, I, was, I was upsetting the Australian government and po politicians, uh, like a stream of politicians kept coming out and asking me to stop and heads, secretaries of the departments of different government agencies were ringing me up, begging me to stop and... And people like the Archbishop of Melbourne of the Anglican Church came to see me. Um, interestingly, he didn't ask me to give up. He, he actually thanked me for what I was doing for humanity and he gave me a beautiful little um, wooden heart like that you could, I could hold in my hand, a carved wooden heart. And wow. he told me that it was from a tree an olive tree in Bethlehem. And when he told me that, he, he started crying and, and I started crying and I said, I'm not Christian, but I believe in the power of humanity and, and in prayer and this will give me strength. And so for the rest of my hunger strike, including when I was in hospital, I held that in my pocket or against my, my chest. But, but I, I, I did give up. Well, I, I didn't give up on climate but I stopped my hunger strike because I decided that I was more valuable alive than dead oh, to my wow. family and to climate and to climate action. Why don't you tell us what is a hunger strike? That's a good question, Claire, because I didn't know what a hunger strike was before I decided to do one. I, I started to research hunger striking and there's not a lot of information actually out there, particularly about 
the physiological impacts and the risks. I didn't eat, put anything in my mouth except water or salt uh, for, for almost 17 days. Um, the salt, when you're not eating, you can lose your electrolytes quite quickly just by flushing your border, body with water. What mm. happens to your body after a few days of this? I mean, people would be familiar with fasting for short periods of time, but what happens when you don't eat for day upon day? Yeah, and so that's a really interesting thing too because I also did some research on prolonged fasting, which um, is similar to hunger striking except it doesn't have the intense emotional uh, and social impact that hunger striking does. But basically our bodies actually evolved to go without food because we didn't evolve with supermarkets everywhere and, you know, three meals a day. Uh, so the first two to three days are the hardest because during that time your body actually shifts from burning sugar um, and glucose, which is stored in your blood and in your liver, uh, to burning uh, fat. And, and it goes into a process called ketosis and and your blood sugar goes right down, but these things called ketones go right up. And so the, the first day I was running on adrenaline and felt fine. The, the second day I was really dizzy. And um, when I needed to go to the toilet, I had to walk down some stairs underneath Parliament House in the car park area. I had to be really careful because I'd get lightheaded. I had to hold onto the rail and... Um, and then on the third day in the morning, I felt quite unwell. And I remember my wife said, Gregory, if you don't start getting better, I'm going to put my foot down on this. Uh, but then my body switched over. It's, they also call it starvation mode. But it's quite extraordinary. Basically, after the second day, my whole gastrointestinal system stopped working. So, like, in, sorry for oversharing a bit, but the morning, my first morning, I did a normal poo. The next day I did a tiny rabbit pellet and then I didn't go to the toilet for over two weeks for number twos. And, and once my body was in that starvation mode, I had more energy and I wasn't hungry. I, my stomach didn't rumble um, and I didn't feel hangry or, or any of those sort of lightheaded. I felt um, and slowly each day for about 10 days, I got better. I felt stronger. And uh, the evolutionary science behind it is that we, if we're hungry and we can't find food, our body charges us up to go out and get a bison or dig up some yams or find food. Look, before we go any further, listening to you speak there, Gregory, and I know you've got a daughter, I'm thinking that mm. some people may listen to this and say, is this guy insane? Is he vindicating not eating, saying, don't worry, your body will be fine? There is a difficult subtext to this. It's not why you did it. But what yeah. do you think about protecting audiences from this feeling that what you're doing is perfectly safe and fine? What's your reaction to that? Yeah, actually, that's a really good question. And because one of my best friends who supported me on the hunger strike, her daughter is anorexic and recovering anorexic. Um, but what I should say is after about nine to 10 days of feeling quite good, um, then my body started to deteriorate and my arms and legs and my chest were really aching. And the nurse actually told me the reason your body is aching is now your body is eating itself and, and now your body is eating muscle. And also when I finally went to hospital, I, I had to be under supervision um, to avoid something called refeeding syndrome. And there was a specialist who was looking after me and, and just about everyone except me who he looks after um, is anorexic. It's a really interesting question because it shocked some people uh, and because I don't have an eating disorder, I love food and, and I, I want to nourish my body, but I needed to do something to show the world that, that this is a serious issue. Let, let's come back to motivation. Tell us about your motivation. Mm. So my motivation uh, was obviously for the Australian government to get serious about climate change and stop greenwashing. Uh, you know, our environment minister... Um, has approved. So we, we, we had an election about 18 months ago and we elected a supposedly progressive government and the Prime Minister's slogan 
was a better future. And a significant part of that was about climate action. But since they've come into power, they've actually approved five new coal mines with 147 million tonnes of emissions. And so my, my motivation was for them to get serious about climate action, and that involved ending um, these obscene fossil fuel subsidies where we spend more on the fossil fuel subsidies for big companies than we do our army. Uh, our fossil fuel subsidies could build 22 world-class hospitals every year or employ 140,000 teachers or nurses. But hang on, you had five demands and you've yeah. also got a petition on your website that you want yeah. people to sign. I've signed it and it's asking for things like stop native forest logging in Australia and these crazy subsidies that we give yes. to the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. What else? Yeah, so in addition to that, end, ending Australia's exports of fossil fuels, coal and gas, including climate change, in our environment protection laws, because currently the laws that are used to assess whether a development can go ahead don't consider climate change. And then the final demand was for our Prime Minister to release something that he promised to do, which is called the National um, Security Climate Impact Assessment Report. So our intelligence agencies were tasked with develop and our Defence Department were tasked with doing a really thorough assessment of what the national security impacts to Australia of climate change are. And our Prime Minister has sat on that for over a year and kept it secret. And so we need to know about that so we can adapt. I felt like I had to do something uh, significant and profound. And I felt that um, tweeting about things and advising from the government from the inside wasn't working. And also while I wholeheartedly support them, the the people that glue themselves onto things and block streets, that by itself is also not um, fixing the problem. If anything, what the governments are doing instead of fixing climate change, they're ramping up and criminalising nonviolent actors even more. And so I'd thought about gluing myself onto something. I think I thought about Gandhi and the hunger strikes that he, he uh, undertook for India's freedom. I'd like to talk about the history of this as a tactic. Usually these activations are political. Now, Gandhi did this more than once, went on hunger strike. In September the 16th, 1932, for example, he started a hunger strike in Yerovda jail, which is near Mumbai, to protest the British government's decision to separate India's electoral system by caste. And then he did it a few more times. He did it in 1943 when he was 73 years old. Mm. Um, and he'd planned that to be a 21-day fast. Then we remember, I think, the ones from prison. I feel mm. like maybe if you're in prison, your options are limited. I don't know. These tend to be very controversial. And the most famous one is Bobby Sands, the IRA stuff. Mm. Uh, so he was actually an elected MP for Sinn Féin at the time that he died. He was in the Mays prison. It was the early 80s. He lasted 66 days and he died. I mean, it's heavy, isn't it? The history of hunger striking tied to political action, but also criminality. We're talking about people who are incarcerated, who've been convicted of whatever crimes they may be. In the case of Bobby Sands, which is very complicated, we'll share some links if you want to read around it. But he was an IRA commanding officer, dubbed a terrorist, this stuff is is very divisive. What would you say to people whose associations with the idea of hunger striking are less Gandhi and social justice and more people in prison who are outside of society and maybe deserve to be so? I think in Australia, most of the hunger strikers are, are either prisoners or refugees uh, who have been locked up and and detained in detention centres actually on islands or, and they're driven to it through pain uh, and suffering. And I think in those cases the hunger strikes are more about an individual injustice. Uh, I have empathy for them because actually hunger striking isn't easy. It's very intense and I did it for a lot shorter period than many of these people in prisons or refugee detention centres. Uh, I think the most important thing is that if somebody's driven to hunger strike, it's a selfless act. The only person who they are harming or risking physical harm to is themselves. And so for me, I think it's actually um, quite powerful 
from a moral and ethical perspective. I'm glad you mentioned refugees because there are obvious examples, aren't they? Yeah, there are. And I know in the UK now there's something horrible happening where refugees are being locked up on boats like the hulks, like the people who were actually exported to Australia as criminals during the colonial era and the convict era. And there's something deeply disturbing about that. And if I was locked up on one of those hulks, I wouldn't rule out hunger striking either. It does seem like it can be an act of desperation when there's no other, it feels like there are no other avenues open to you. Mm. Does that, do you relate to that? I, I do relate to that. And I, I think that a lot of the media in Australia reported my, my hunger strike as an act of desperation. And, and I definitely think the government's response and the reason that Anthony Albanese ghosted me is they didn't want to encourage more such acts of desperation. Is that something you feel the weight of responsibility around? Something that we do not desire others to emulate or copy? I remember during my hunger strike saying to a lot of young people, please don't do what I'm doing. And I don't want young people to suffer. And that's actually why I chose to suffer. In some ways, there is something desperate about my call because it seems that governments and the world are asleep at the wheel and have cognitive dissonance. And if they're more focused on one human life than they are on the three to six billion lives at risk, then that's actually quite sad. Now, you've had many supporters. I saw people bring you flowers. You mentioned the different faith healers who actually came down to the strike in Canberra and lent you their support and talked to you. The Danish climate journalist Mick Eit, who lives here now, wrote, by putting his own health on the line, Gregory Andrews is making a radical and ethical statement. He tries to catch our attention by not disturbing anyone or destroying anything, but by quietly appealing to the conscience of society. But not everyone was into it. This is actually weird, but sometimes I watch this horrendous right-wing commentator. His name is Andrew Bolt, and he's on the Australian equivalent of Fox News and my husband's like, why would you put this thing on the television? But I like to see what the opposition says and is doing so we know what we're dealing with. And sometimes I just watch him just to be like, okay, what are these arguments that are being made around racism, xenophobia, climate change denial, whatever it may be? And I turned it on and you were on there just like in <laughs> real time. What did he say to you? You stormed out, right? So, yeah, actually that man has a reputation for not only being the rudest sort of host, but, but also being extreme with his right-wing misogyny, homophobia, climate change denialism, etc. anti-refugee. So I, I, it was the first mainstream invitation that I got. And, and I actually thought, well, this is great because the people who are listening are the people who are the most important for me to speak to. So I, I was just like, yeah, great, bring it on. Uh, and so I went in uh, and did that interview, but he, he actually gaslighted me and my daughter. He told me that I, was, that I was freaking my daughter out and that I was a really bad, irresponsible father. And, and I tried to say, actually, you don't know what my daughter thinks. My daughter supports me 100%. But he just was consistently, uh, and I had to ask him, please stop shouting at me you're bullying me. And then his response was to shout and bully me even more. So, so finally I just said, look, excuse me, I'm sorry, but you're impolite and rude. So I'm finishing this up. And I just sort of unclipped all the bits and pieces and stood, stood up and walked out. And, and this young man called Marcus, who brought me into the studio and walked me out, we were walking out together and he was sort of shaking his head and I said, how did that go, Marcus? And he said, oh, I've never seen, I've been here for two years. I've never seen anyone walk out on him before. We talked about your responsibility to your family. You've made it very clear that you had this agreement with your wife, that this wasn't a decision you made lightly or on your own, and you didn't want to die. You were, mm. however, putting yourself in potential danger. Do you want to just unpack that a bit? Did you think you might die? Were you absolutely sure that you would be safely doing this and that you knew when you would know when the right time was to stop? I, I think the answer is um, yes, I, I, did, I did think I might die during the hunger strike and no, I didn't really know when it would stop 
And, and I think that the longer it went on, the harder it was for everyone except me, uh, particularly my, my wife and children uh, and a lot of close family, uh, but also politicians and different people that were worried. I, my main concern was my heart because I have an enlarged heart and a heart murmur and my blood pressure was also high, really high all the time. And usually when people fast or go on a hunger strike, their blood pressure goes down. Uh, physiologically, um, starvation makes your blood pressure go down, but mine was dangerously high. So that with my heart condition was kind of my, my biggest worry. I knew I wouldn't starve to death. I'd need to go for another three or four weeks to starve to death. Um, so I wasn't worried about starving to death, but I was worried that I might have a heart attack. And, but, but it was worth it. I, I didn't, I didn't, that didn't make me stop. What made me stop was um, my wife and the Parliament House nurse um, convincing me. You did stop. However, the strike did not stop. You passed the baton on to others who came down to Parliament House and took over for 24-hour stints to fast, essentially. Mm. A symbolic continuation of the protest. Did you, did you plan that? No, I didn't. And didn't it you? Was, no, not at all. And it was quite amazing. Uh, I think two days before my hunger strike ended, I, I, the, an email, I just kept getting hundreds of emails and messages and, and people just, I met so many people. It was a, I was one person in a swag, but I was so not lonely on that hunger strike. But, but about two days before I was carted off in the ambulance to hospital, there was a message from this man called Evan who was the, um, the deputy mayor of Shoalhaven local council area. And he said, oh, we're coming up and we're going to join you. And I, I thought, oh, that'll be great. And then I just forgot to get back to him because there were too many emails. Next thing I knew, he was there and, and he'd set up like a, like a Gmail account and was letting, and then people were all emailing in and registering for days that they would do it. So, and, so do you yeah. think it was effective? I was going to ask you, did it work? What, was it worth it? But when you look back on it and then you mm. factor in the fact that people came along to take the cause on symbolically, yeah. does that feel like a victory? I mean, the Prime Minister continued to ignore you. Yeah, so the Prime Minister's still ghosting me. However, I've got 5,424 signatures, including yours, and, and I did actually manage finally to speak to someone in his office and tell them that I would like to come and present it respectfully and courteously to him. Um, but I, I think my hunger strike was really, really successful. Uh, when I was in hospital, I kept apologising to the nurses and the doctors and saying to them, look, I'm really sorry that I'm in here having made an active choice to do this to your my body and I really appreciate the wow. non-judgmental support and care that you're giving me. And they get it. The, the Australian Doctors for the Environment came and visited me and supported me, you know. But, but anyway, I remember one of the nurses said, that's fine, Gregory, but I just want to know, one, was it worth it? And two, would you do it again? And and I said, it was definitely worth it, but no, I wouldn't do it again. I was about to say, please tell me you wouldn't do it again because I actually don't want you to. It was uh, watching it on Instagram, talking about it in the house. We, there was a, a wave, I think, of worry for you. Yeah. I want to just touch on non-violent direct action and how it is being clamped down on in this country and elsewhere. You mm. mentioned that earlier in this conversation. After your hunger strike had finished and after you'd rested a little bit, not for too long, you actually were at the coal port of Newcastle. And this was actually a protest that had the relevant permissions. So it was allowed to go ahead, but they only lasted till 4pm. People mm. stayed later. And after that, 100 people or more were arrested. It is crackers. It was like surfers sitting in the ocean. It was just concerned citizens voicing their right to say that they want to see action on climate and action on open cut coal mines. And yet... They've been arrested en masse. I feel like what kind of world are we living in? It was a pretty sad scene. I, so, yeah, I was there and I was blocking the harbour, but during the, the sanctioned part of the blockade, um, I didn't participate in the supposedly unlawful part of it, not because I don't have the deepest admiration for climate activists, I do. And if, I, if my body wasn't still recuperating, I, I very likely would have been out there because I really admire them. I, but I also felt deeply sad for the police. Uh, 
because the scene of these police, like in sort of rounding up and dragging the these protesters, one man was 97. There was another man who was blind, like a like a young uh, man in his uh, teens who was blind. And, it, and I it, saw on your feed uh, photos of knitting nanas. I've written about this activist group before in the Rise and Resist book that I wrote about how to change the world. Knitting nanas are exactly what they sound like. They are grandmas who use craftivism and knitting to make cheerful, creative protest. It's grandmas, really. They, you no, want to I love them? the knitting nanas. I mean, but I, it just seems so, it just seems like Twilight Zone stuff, really, that we would it say do, you does, can't yeah. sit outside this building and knit. You can't be a 97-year-old man who cares about the environment and wants mm. to say something publicly. It just seems we're in a funny place. What do you think? I think in Australia what's happened is that people forget Australia's a petro-state. We're a wealthy country. We, we project ourselves as friendly and with beautiful beaches and kangaroos and koalas, but we're actually a petro state and we're one of the richest countries in the world because of gas and coal. So I think that our two major parties, Labor and Liberal, have actually been trapped by the fossil fuel industry. And they also think they have a duopoly right to run the country. And uh, so that, that both of them, Labor and Liberal, have responded by criminalising climate activists. Uh, but the criminals aren't the people who are standing bravely to save the planet. Of course they are if they're violent. But, it, but if it's non-violent protests like the knitting nanas or like the 97-year-old man, the real criminals are the people um, in positions of power who are allowing continuation of um, development and extraction and export of coal and gas. Thank you for making that clear. I think that it is really important that we sit with the facts of this. I do want to move on to biodiversity. It's a linked issue, but it's also one that you and I share a passion for. And maybe, I don't know, I feel like when we talk about big troublesome stuff that makes us miserable, the idea of arresting a 97-year-old man on a surfboard etc. It makes us feel lost and like we can't find a way. And I also think if you're listening to this, you're not going to go on a hunger strike. So it would be good for us to think about some of the things we can do. And my way into this has always been my interest in creativity as a superpower and also my love for animals and nature. So I want to just move on mm. to that. Let's talk about well, actually, <laughs> your Instagram handle and your consultancy is called Liarbird Dreaming. Yeah, a liarbird's an amazing thing. Tell us about a liarbird. What's a superb yeah. liarbird? So the liarbird is my dreaming that I inherited from my Aboriginal ancestors and like a dreaming is like a totem. Uh, so it's actually almost like the national flag for my people. Um, Australia, before Europeans arrived, there were 260 different language groups here. We, we were a continent with so many different nations of people. So the liarbird's really special to me, but also the lyrebird, the story, the dreaming story about the lyrebird is the animal that speaks the language of all of the other birds and animals. So, is it? Li yeah, lyrebirds mimic, and they even now they mimic mobile phones and the sounds of I've chainsaws chopping the forest. They are amazing. Do you know, I've actually seen one because they're hard to find. I've seen one. That's great, Describe yeah. them and what they, what they can do with their incredible vocalisation. Oh, yeah, so lyrebirds are... You could almost say they're like a like a small to medium-sized peacock in shape. The males and the females have a beautiful tail like a peacock, but, but the males actually build these mounds and they use their tails and these incredible calls to attract females and they have competitions for who can have the most beautiful call. And, and uh, so they're an exquisite, exquisite animal. And Australia, we're, we're a continent that drifted up from Gondwana land for, for millions and millions of years separate from the rest of the world. And, and so the scientists um, refer to it as bioabundance, but we're just chock-a-block full of extraordinary, unique animals and plants. And, and, and so like the, the lyrebird is one of those. But an, another really good example of that biodiversity, there are more eucalyptus tree species just in Sydney just eucalyptus trees than all tree species in the UK put together. What? Really? Yeah. So it sort of really shows how, not just how unique, but how bioabundant 
we are here on this continent. You mentioned before that you were Australia's first threatened species commissioner. What did that entail? Yeah, so that was the best job I ever had in my career. And uh, I often say my number one kind of um, KPI in that job was to compete with Kim Kardashian. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because, like, you'd think, why is that? But in Australia, we have 12 mammals rarer than the giant panda, but most Australians wouldn't be able to identify or name them. But more people recognise Kim Kardashian in Australia than a Fascagale or a numbat or a golden bandicoot. I just, I'll come back to the number. (laughs) I always said when I was a threatened species commissioner, of course, there are all these science-based threats like feral cats and habitat destruction and climate change. But the biggest threat was Kim Kardashian because more Australians knew who she was and we needed to compete with Kim Kardashian to raise the love and awareness of what we're losing. Gregory, Mm. if you Google threatened species commissioner, The second link that I came up with anyway was something called Threatened Species Bake Off, Mm. which is now apparently in its seventh year. I happen to know you're involved in that. You'd been a judge. I don't know if you started it, but it's very joyful. If you do need cheering up, please do Google the Numbat Cake and the Bandicoot entry from 2017. (laughs) Actually, I have to say, myself and an Australian, a British Australian scientist named Rebecca West, we did start that. We started the Threatened Species Bake Off and and we asked Annabelle Crabb, who's quite a a famous Australian um, journalist, but also quite famous for cooking. Uh, We asked her to be one of the judges. But this was one of the ideas that we had to get the profile of these extraordinary animals and plants Um, higher in the minds of people. And so one way to do it was to actually bake cakes shaped like all these remarkable animals. (laughs) Okay, over five years with more than 700 entries, I would have thought there should be 7,000, but there you go. This year, The Guardian looked across these entrants and they found that koalas, echidnas and wombats were consistently depicted noting these are the typical poster children of conservation in Australia. Uh, We love a koala, we love to give money to them, but there's a lot less awareness of these smaller creatures, maybe the less charismatic ones, or plants, or trees. We're not noticing the little things, is that right? One thing I would say is that if we tell people that it's really important to save the cave-dwelling invertebrates of the Nullarbor Plain, which are these, like, you know, things like prawns that live under the water in the Great Artesian Basin, no one ever sees them, then people might say, why, I care more about koalas because they're cute. And koalas are cute and and so are numbats. But what I always used to say when I was the commissioner is if we save the numbat, the actions to save it save everything else in the same habitat. And so if it's an umbrella species or a flagship species for conservation, then I still think it's worth doing. And and we shouldn't make people feel guilty for admiring or thinking that certain creatures are cute. But we also need to do a better job at making people passionate about plants and and anthropomorphising plants as as, as well as cute marsupials. How do you think creativity can unlock change? Would you put your hunger strike in the basket of creative activism or is that something else entirely? I think my hunger strike was creative because um, in some ways it was like a a form of art because I I spent three to four months planning it, including what I wore and, and also... I had a folding chair and I didn't want it to look like I was lazy and on a holiday. But And also eventually I went to the swag, but I tried not to go into the swag too early because that projected exhaustion and weakness. And, and so there was definitely a form of art. And where I positioned myself, I, I always tried to sit in front of Parliament House with Parliament House behind me. Uh, but also the way that I communicated with the politicians. So, because a lot of the politicians would come out, they didn't want to see me. A lot of them did, by the way, the independents and the Greens all came out. But the the Labor and the Liberal people both avoided me like the plague. And the Liberal people sort of had smirks on their faces 
uh, because they were thinking, great, the Labor government's getting into trouble and because the Liberals don't really try to pretend that hard that they care about climate change, whereas Labor try to pretend they do care. So they were like really neurotic and they would walk past me and you could see their advisors saying, don't make eye contact, don't make eye contact. And then I'd wave and I'd go, hi, hi, it's Gregory, I'm over here. And so it was like a form of theatre. So it was, it was creative. It, it feels like, actually, I think it was, it's definitely, apart from getting married and having my two children, it's definitely the most significant thing that I've ever done in my life. And um, and I I really cherish the fact that I did it. And, and I don't encourage other people to do it, but I'm really, really glad I did it. And I really... Uh, looking back at it now, objectively, I enjoyed the adaptive creativity of how I responded to things. And like even before you mentioned when I was in hospital, like there was a lady called Annette who came and visited me when I was in hospital. And she came from Queanbeyan, which is a neighbouring town, with this beautiful bunch of roses that she picked from her garden. And she also had her disability dog, Rocket, with her. And, and Rocket came into the hospital and Annette came and she gave me the flowers and she said, look, I don't want to disturb you, but I just want to thank you for what you did and I just brought you these flowers. And then I just smelt them and asked one of the nurses to take a photograph of me. And I think 5,000 and something people, you know, mm. liked and shared that photo. It's so interesting to listen to you talk about an individual act of kindness or someone who you hadn't met before responding to something you're doing here and that becoming part of the kind of tapestry of activism that I think we're all trying to work to achieve. I want to end on hope. I've heard you talk before about active hope. That's Joanna Macy's lovely phrase. Yeah. What gives you hope at the end I, of all this or the beginning? <laughs> yeah, you know, what gives me hope is the um, deep, sense of humanity that I experienced during that hunger strike. And one of the last groups of people, if you could say, that, that I remember talking to was a family who were visiting Canberra on holidays, a mum and a dad and um, their two primary school-aged children, and all four of them were standing. And I was lying in the swag and they were standing, looking over me, holding hands, and... Um, it makes me quite emotional just remembering it and talking about it. But the dad reached out to me and shook my hand, but it was more like holding my hand and just kept saying thank you. <laughs> yeah, so now I'm having an emotional response to that. But, but that family gave me hope because, like, and I remember thinking, oh, I hope I'm not freaking out the children, because the children were just standing there and their mum and dad are explaining that, that I hadn't eaten anything for 16 days because I wanted the government to do more um, to save our children and our country from climate collapse. And, and the children actually just looked at me with love and um, but a, some sense of awe, I think, and the mum and dad the, the, all of them, like, they knew what I was doing was right and that I was doing something not just for me, my children but for all of our children. So that gives me hope. If you're listening to this and you want to take some action, forget hunger strikes, forget chaining yourself to the cold tracks. <laughs> what advice would you give, Gregory? You've, you talked about having climate grief yourself and feeling stuck. What, what would you say to the person listening who's like, well, I'm not going to do any of these things and yet I want to do something? Mm. I would say participate actively to reinvent democracy. And when yeah, I was but come on, that's hard. <laughs> okay, but, but it's not that hard. Like in Australia, we've got this movement of independence and, and I, I, one of the independents in, in, at the ACT is a senator now in our parliament called David Pocock. And, and at the last election, I campaigned for him because he cares about gang-gang cockatoos. He was the only politician I'd heard of talking about endangered birds. And, but he's in the parliament now making a difference. And he was one of the first people that came down 
to see me and he didn't judge me or try to talk me out of hunger striking. And I just remember another independent, Dr Sophie Scamps, who was from Sydney, and she she's a doctor and I remember apologising and saying, I'm really sorry that I'm doing this. I hope it's not freaking you out as a doctor. And she was so respectful. But then she said, look, please finish your hunger strike before you harm yourself or die because I want you and people like you to come into Parliament House and reclaim and reinvent democracy like I have because our party system, they think they own and run the place and I think it's like that in most major democracies where they have this duopoly. So I, I think the best thing and the most influential thing we can do is not just vote on election day but identify and encourage the right people to get into Parliament and to make the decisions for us rather than for their parties. That's perfect. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I appreciate it so much. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you, because I love you.